This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 34, The Night the long knives. Over the course of three nights in June and July 1934 AD, the high commanders of various Nazi political and paramilitary factions were systematically eliminated. This purge, designed to remove all potential opposition to Hitler's rule, came to be known as the Nacht der Langen Messer, or Night of the Long Knives. It is an inauspicious name for an episode, but then, the events of this episode are not exactly auspicious. Certainly it is fitting, in a convoluted manner, for the night to which I refer to is a night quite unlike any other in the Middle Kingdom. The event took place in 1961 BCE, the 30th year since Amenemhat I took the throne of Upper and Lower Egypt, becoming the first ruler of the 12th dynasty. It was now ten years since his son, Senusaret I, was appointed as co-ruler, a period in which Egypt had conquered a portion of northern Nubia, expanded its impact into the western desert, and seen the completion of the king's pyramid tomb at Al-Lisht. Events were proceeding smoothly, and Amenemhat I, who was now at least in his fifties, could look back on a long and stable reign with some sense of pride. Yet something was rotten in the state of Egypt. For one evening in 1961, the king was murdered in his bed, struck down by the very men set to protect them. What is strange about this event, at least from our modern view, is that the event itself is recorded in a document which claims to be the reflections and teachings of Amenemhat himself. Quote, it was after supper, and night had fallen. I took an hour of recreation, lying on my bed, for I was weary, and I began to doze. When weapons were brandished and men argued about me, I acted like the snake of the desert, for I awoke at the fighting, and was by myself, and I found that it was a combat with the guard. If I had made haste with weapons in my hand, I would have made the cowards retreat in confusion, But no one is brave at night, and no one can fight alone. No happy outcome can result without a protector. The end of Amenemhat's life came suddenly and unexpectedly, and we do not know who led the conspiracy to murder the anointed ruler of Upper and Lower Egypt. Such an act was both treasonous and blasphemous, upsetting the essential order of the universe and sabotaging the proper cosmic rituals which bound reality together. But how can a king record his own assassination? Of course, he can't. The work is not actually by Amenemhat, but by a later writer 
placing his words within the late king's mouth. The work is in fact a semi-propagandistic but mostly literary story designed to instruct its reader. Putting such teachings into the mouth of a king is a classic literary technique. The example that leaps into my head is the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra, which places the musings of Nietzsche into the mouth of Zarathustra, aka the Persian sage Zoroaster, from whom we get the religion of Zoroastrianism. By placing his words in the mouth of a respected historical figure, the author gives artificial weight to their ideas, and also suggests a link between themselves and the fictional author. The same idea is at work here, in the so-called teachings of Amenemhat for his son Senusaret. Current Egyptological consensus dates the writing of this work to the early years of Senusaret I, who may have wanted to create both a eulogy for his late father, and a stronger tie between himself and his predecessor. Rather fitting, I think, considering that Amenemhat had strengthened his own claim to power by manufacturing a prophecy set in the time of Sneferu of the 4th dynasty. It is strange that Amenemhat's teachings do not make reference to the culprit. Unlike the assassination of Teti in the 6th dynasty, no references to trials or court proceedings survive following Amenemhat's murder. For this reason, some scholars think that the king actually survived the assassination, and was able to dictate his teachings to his son on his deathbed. It is not an impossible circumstance. The king may have survived at first, and slowly succumbed to his wounds over the coming days. But perhaps this is not strictly important. What is important is that weapons were turned against the king of Egypt, and he died as a result of the attack. At any rate, Senusaret, or the scribe he commissioned, makes no effort to link the event with anyone more specific than the guards. This seems like a missed opportunity. After all, the Nazi Nacht der Langen Messe was a carefully managed operation to remove dissidents and political opponents from the higher echelons of German society. You would think Senusaret would take the opportunity to cast the culprits as demonic vermin, striking against the very fabric of Egyptian society. If nothing else, it was a good chance to remove any troublesome courtiers. But if the new king took this path in any way, it has not survived in the record. It is possible that the guards acted entirely on their own motivation. This would explain why we don't have any records of trials. The culprits were caught literally red-handed, and probably executed on the spot. But it is difficult to figure out their motivation. Normally, when guards turn on a monarch, it is because they have a candidate already waiting in the wings, one who can take on the throne and act in their interests. But when Amenemhat died, he was not Egypt's sole ruler. The young Senusaret I had been co-regent for about ten years at this point, and must have been firmly entrenched in his power. The guards could not simply replace him with a new candidate, he was already an anointed sovereign. As far as the gods were concerned, the only thing that changed with Amenemhat's death was Egypt now had one king rather than two. Of course, perhaps the guards were hoping to kill Senusaret as well, 
to replace him with a new ruler. This is entirely possible, as the young king was on campaign in Libya when his father was murdered. Accidents happen in the desert, after all. Ah, but what if the culprit was in fact the young co-ruler Senusaret? It would not be the last case of patricide in a royal family. The young king could have taken the opportunity of his campaign to organise the murder of his father, confident that his absence from Egypt would protect him from any accusation of impiety. This would certainly explain why there are no records of court proceedings, at least on the surface. The guards may have acted on Senusaret's orders and been killed in the process, effectively silencing any chance that they would name the young king as a conspirator. But then you start to think about it more deeply, and the idea makes less sense. For one thing, it is highly unlikely Senusaret would have allowed the guards any indication that he was the one giving their orders. That's what you have courtiers and favourites for, to manage your affairs in a way that leaves you blameless. These people also provide a convenient scapegoat, but I suppose that, if it had been the case, we would have had some hint of their culpability within the teachings of Amenemhat. And then there is the final issue that makes it unlikely Senusaret manufactured the death of his own father. This is the issue of time. Amenemhat was not a young man when he died. He was probably already past the average life expectancy. If Senusaret wanted to rule alone, he just had to wait. And more importantly, he was already a king of Egypt. The change from co-ruler to sole ruler cannot have been so significant that it was worth committing murder against one's father, a sovereign ruler of Upper and Lower Egypt. You see, it is an interesting conundrum, and one that is pretty difficult to untangle solely from the teachings of Amenemhat themselves. I don't think we will ever discover for certain who was behind the murder of Amenemhat I. Whoever orchestrated the murder, if it was not the guards, covered their tracks well enough that no trace of them survives in the historical record. Uncertainties were rife in this situation. The young king Senusaret was en route home from a campaign in Libya, and was not present to take up his father's crown. In the meantime, funeral preparations had to be started, and the administration had to be secured to ensure that nobody attempted a general coup. The court would have been in disarray for sure. The traces of this survive in a literary tale of the age, one of the most famous stories in the Egyptian canon. It has been adapted into a Finnish novel and a Hollywood film, both titled The Egyptian. You can find the full movie of The Egyptian on YouTube with Italian subtitles. I recommend it. The story I refer to is the magnificent Tale of Sinue, a composition of the early Middle Kingdom that became one of the classic works of Egyptian literature. The story survives in a mostly complete form on several large papyri and pottery fragments, and Egyptologists have reconstructed it pretty much entirely. I will not read you the entire story, it's not exactly short. I do, however, recommend finding a copy of it in either Miriam Licktime's Ancient Egyptian Literature, Volume 1, or William Kelly Simpson's The Literature of Ancient Egypt. Finally, 
there is a very serviceable translation on reshafim.org by the University of Arizona. The three versions are different, of course. Different translators will use different synonyms for an Egyptian term, and may put emphasis on different parts, whichever they think are the most important. But all three versions are good. Though the version found in William Kelly Simpson's Literature of Ancient Egypt is my personal favourite. If you can find it online, I recommend buying it. It is comprehensive and well written, very much worth the investment for your bookshelf. The story of Sinue begins in the middle of events. Sinusaret is en route home from Libya, with his army in attendance. Among his entourage is Sinue, serving as a steward of the harem and an attendant on Neferu, the young king's consort. Sinue is an archetypal good man, although he is not superhuman. When the news reaches the camp of Amenemhat's death, Sinue is thrown into a fit of despair. Quote, My heart became distraught, my arms spread apart, trembling had descended on all my limbs. I took myself to seek a hiding place, and placed myself between two bushes so as to sunder the road from its traveller. I set out southward, but decided not to approach the royal residence. I thought there would be strife, and I had no desire to live on after the king. Instead, I set off northward, and reached the walls of the prince, which were made to repel the Asiatics, and to crush the Bedouin. I hid myself in a thicket through fear, lest the watcher on the wall might see. End quote. Sinue's terror at the discord afflicting Egypt is palpable, but what could possibly have induced a lowly attendant and soldier to flee the country entirely? His panic had brought him to the very edge of Egypt proper, on the eastern edge of the delta. Here, amid the fortresses established by Sankare Montuhotep III, and renewed by Amenemhat and Senusaret, Sinue could hide quietly from any military agents or troops. So what caused him so much terror? Well, the answer is multifaceted. Sinue, a soldier in service to Senusaret and his wife Neferu, was technically an agent of Amenemhat I. As the senior ruler, the guarantor of Ma'at on earth, it was Amenemhat that maintained all social contracts and obligations. His son was merely a junior partner, permitted to lead armies and administer the kingdom, of course, but lacking the universal spiritual authority of a fully-fledged king of Egypt. For Sinue, the death of Amenemhat was the sundering of his ties to Egyptian society, and the foundation of his service in the world. It was a source of sustenance and income, but also of security and stability. Sinuhe's grief, then, was probably warranted. With his moorings cut, so to speak, Sinue was cast adrift into the spiritual wilderness, overcome by despair and the loss of a monarch whom he regarded as a god, for the purposes of the story, anyway. Sinue fled the presence of the army. It was not desertion, for his service was now technically at an end. Rather, it was despair in the face of tragedy, and a will to be away from the source of his grief. This fear and flight 
brought him to the very borders of Egypt, and then beyond. Quote, An attack of thirst overtook me. I was parched, my throat burned, and I said, This is the taste of death. Then I lifted my heart and gathered up my body. I heard the sound of the lowing of cattle, and espied men of the Asiatics. A sheikh among them, who had been long in Egypt, recognized me and gave me water. He boiled for me milk, and I went with him to his tribe, and they treated me kindly. I set forth to Byblos, and I spent half a year there. Then Enshi, son of Amu, prince of Aparachenu, took me and said to me, Thou farest well with me, for thou hearest the tongue of Egypt. This he said, for he had become aware of my qualities. He had heard of my wisdom. Egyptian folk who were there with him had testified concerning me, and he said to me, Why have you come here? Has something befallen the residents? This was Sinue's chance for a new life, but also a moment of extreme danger. The wrong answer could see him threatened as a spy, but the truth could see him disgraced as a deserter. In keeping with his virtuous character, for which Sinue is very much an archetype, he replied honestly. I said to him, Sehetep Ibre Amenemhat is departed to the horizon, and none knoweth what has happened in this matter. And I spoke again, avoiding the issue. I know not what has brought me to this country. It was like the dispensation of the god. Then he said to me, How shall your land fare without the king, he whose dread was like the goddess Sakhmet in a year of plague? Ah, this was the heart of the question, wasn't it? Sinue had fled Egypt in despair. How was he to continue if his lord and sovereign was dead? Quote, I answered him, His son has entered the palace, and has taken the inheritance of his father. A god is he without a peer. No one surpasses him. He is a master of prudence, excellent in counsel, and effective in decrees. Comings and goings are at his command. It is he who subdued the foreign lands while his father was within his palace, and reported to him what was ordered to do. Valiant is he, achieving with his strong arm, active, and no one is like him. Vengeful is he, a smasher of foreheads, no one can stand against him. Stout of heart is he when he sees a multitude, he suffers not sloth or despair to encompass his heart. His face has been set towards the kingship ever since he was born. He is a master of grace, great in sweetness. He conquers through love. His city loves him more than itself. It rejoices over him more than over its god. Men and women pass by in exultation concerning him, now that he is king. He is unique. He is God-given. This land that he rules rejoices. Send to him. Let him know thy name. Utter no curse against his majesty. He fails not to do good to the land that is loyal to him. End quote. This section is interesting, for Sinue essentially lays out a series of very good reasons why he should have remained in Egypt. If Sinusaret is truly just, he will accept Sinue's service and protect him as his father did. If he is vengeful, will he not take Sinue's flight with anger? If he is loving, 
he will forgive the wanderer, and if his power extends as far as Byblos, in modern-day Lebanon, he will find Sinue eventually. Surely Sinue here provides good reasons to stay in Egypt. But it is too late for that, and he knows it. This speech is a means of guaranteeing his safety, by encouraging the chieftain to assure King Senusaret of his loyalty. Sinue can be confident that the king would not campaign against the region in the near future, as long as loyalty was offered. Sinue got lucky. The land remained at peace for a time. And he was soon taken into the chieftain's confidence, becoming a military leader for him. Quote, It was a goodly land called Yah. Figs were in it, and grapes, and its wine was more abundant than its water. Plentiful was its honey, many were its olives. All manner of fruits were upon its trees. Wheat was in it, and spelt, and limitless cattle of all kinds. Food was provided me for my daily fare, and wine for my daily portion. Cooked meat and roast fowl, over and above the animals of the desert. For men hunted and laid before me, in addition to the quarry of my dogs. And there were made for me many dainties and sweets, and milk prepared in every way. I spent many years here, and my children grew up as mighty men, each one controlling his tribe. I gave water to the thirsty. I rescued he who had been robbed. When the Asiatics spoke insolently, opposing the chieftains of the desert, I counseled their movements. Every country against which I marched, when I made my assault, it was driven from its pastures and wells. I spoiled that country's cattle, I made captive of its inhabitants. I took away their food, I slew people in it. By my strong arm, by my bow, by my movements, and by my excellent counsels. I found favour in the chieftain's heart, and he loved me. He marked my bravery, and placed me even before his children, when he had seen that my hands prevailed. End quote. An idyllic life indeed, by the sounds of it. But of course, things could not be perfect forever, and Sinue was soon in rather a spot of difficulty. The story continues after the break. Stranded in a foreign land, Sinue now finds himself in danger. He must fight for his very life. In the next section of the story, Sinue must enter personal combat with a foreign warrior. Quote, There came a mighty man of Rechenu, and he threatened me in my tent. He was a champion without peer, and he vowed that he would fight with me. He planned to rob me, and he plotted to spoil my cattle by the counsel of his tribesfolk. The chieftain communed with me, and I said, I know him not, I am no confederate of his, nor am I one who visited his encampment. It is envy, because it's he sees me doing thy behest. If his heart is bent on fighting, let him speak his will. At night time I strung my bow, and I tried my arrows. I drew out my dagger, and polished my weapons. Day dawned, and the Rechenu man was already come. He had stirred up his tribes, 
and had assembled the countries of a half of it. He had planned this fight. Forth he came against me where I stood, and I posted myself near him. Every heart burned for me. Women and men jabbered. Every heart was sore for me, saying, Is there another mighty man who can fight against him in your stead? Then his shield, his battle-axe, and his armful of javelins fell, when I had escaped from his weapons, and caused his arrows to pass by me uselessly. I shot him, my arrows sticking in his neck. He cried aloud and fell on his nose. I laid him low with his own battle-axe, and raised my shout of victory over his back. Every Eomite shrieked. I gave thanks to the war-god Montu, but Rechenu's servants mourned for him. Then I carried off his possessions, and I spoiled his cattle. What he had devised to do unto me, I did to him. I seized what was in his tent, and I ransacked his encampment. End quote. If this story has more than a hint of the David and Goliath about it, do not be surprised. The myth of the small man triumphing over the giant is a feature of several ancient myth cycles, and Sinue's is but one variation on that theme of overcoming great adversity. What I particularly like about this passage is that it gives an insight into some of the tactics and rules of war in the region at the time. Battle was with shield, javelin, and axe. This is no Homeric contest of spear-armed Trojans and Greeks. Odds are the men were wearing little armour, relying more on speed and agility to avoid weapons, and to strike quickly. Sinue was swift enough to avoid the enemy's javelins, and to disarm him. Then he killed him. Being defeated, the great man's property was forfeit, and his possessions came to be the possessions of Sinue. Cattle, weapons, and armour, maybe even the servants, all fell to Sinue. Had this been a royal text of victory, it would have included a long list of captives and booty, displaying the power and prestige of the ruler. But for the purposes of Sinue's tale, the most important part, the part he really singles out, is the cattle. For many, many, many ancient cultures, the attainment of cattle was one of the main perks and purposes of warfare. After all, when you think about how incredibly versatile the cow is, providing leather, milk, cheese, meat, and natural fertilizer for fields, you are talking about the most important form of movable wealth available to the ancients. Cattle were such an important resource that the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi, composed less than a hundred years after Amenemhat I, laid out a strict punishment for anyone stealing cattle. If they stole from a free man, they would pay ten times the value of the cattle. If they stole from a temple or from the court, they would be fined thirty times the value of the cattle. If that's not a sign of the importance of cattle in a society, nothing is. For Sinue, the rule was simple. Victory earned him cattle. Taking the cattle, he became a far wealthier man. Quote, I became great thereby. I grew large in my riches. I became abundant in my flocks. This is what the god has done for me. 
in order to show mercy to one whom he had condemned. For today his heart is satisfied. A fugitive who had fled Egypt years before, now my fame is known in the king's residence. A weak man who lagged behind on account of hunger, now I give bread to my neighbor. A man who left his country because of nakedness, now I am clad in white garments and linen. A man who hurried about for lack of a servant, now I am a plenteous owner of slaves. Beautiful is my house, my dwelling place is large. End quote. There is nothing like a good slave culture to enrich a human. And Sinue had become, by the standards of the day, a very wealthy man. But wealth in great quantities brings the crows, to paraphrase one of my favourite movies. And Sinue's wealth and fame brought him, finally, to the attention of Egypt's king, the ruler whom Sinue had abandoned after the death of Amenemhat. Kepakare Sinuseret I had heard of Sinue's location and his success, and now sent him a message requesting that he return home. But Sinue was a deserter, one who had fled at the news of Amenemhat's death. Would Sinuseret forgive him this betrayal, or was Sinue returning to his own execution? Quote, a royal decree under the henchman Sinue. Behold, this decree of the king is brought to thee to instruct thee as following. Thou hast traversed the foreign lands, and gone forth from Egypt to Rechenu. From one land you came to another, of your own volition. This determination, it seized thine own heart. It was not in my heart against thee. Your mistress, who is in the palace, is established and prospers daily. She has her part in the kingship of the land. Her children are at the court. May you long enjoy the goodly things that they shall give to you. May you live by their bounty. Come back to Egypt that you may see the residence, that you may kiss the earth at the great portals, and have thy lot among the companions. Ah, good news indeed. Sinuseret I forgave Sinue, imploring him to return to the king's residence and enjoy the fruits of his service. The queen, Neferu, now dwelling in the palace, was healthy and her children members of the court. For Sinue, the way was open to return to a proper home and live out the last of his years on the earth. Quote, For today already you have begun to be old. Thy manhood is spent. Think of the day of burial, the passing into goodness, how the night shall be devoted to thee with ointments and bandages, and a funeral procession on the day of joining the earth, the mummy shell of gold with head of lapis lazuli, and a heaven above thee, and thou placed upon the hearse, oxen dragging you, musicians in front of you, and there shall be performed the dance at the door of your tomb. And the offering list shall be invoked for you, and slaughterings made beside your stealer. You will not die abroad. Foreigners shall not escort you to your tomb. You will not be placed in a sheepskin when thy mound is made. Think of thy burial, and come. To be buried in Egypt was a fundamental requirement for any Egyptian. In the late 6th dynasty, 
royal expeditions had been sent to Nubia just to retrieve the body of officials who had died away from Egypt. To have one's tomb in the land of one's birth was necessary for the survival of the soul. Otherwise, a spirit was doomed to homelessness, wandering through the netherworld. The king's request really could not have been more positive if he had tried. Bringing Sinue home in his old age to enjoy a retirement in comfort and a respectable, honoured burial was the height of forgiveness. Unsurprisingly, Sinue was overjoyed. Quote, This decree reached me as I stood in the midst of my tribesfolk. It was read aloud to me, and I laid on my belly and touched the soil. I strewed it on my hair, and I went about my encampment, rejoicing and saying, How should such things be done to a servant whose heart led him astray to barbarous lands? Fair indeed is the graciousness which delivers me from death, because your car spirit will grant me to accomplish the ending of my body at home. Penning a quick and verbose reply to the king, Sinue began to make preparations to leave the land of Yam. Quote, Envoys came to this servant, and I was allowed to spend a day in Yah to hand over my possessions to my children, my eldest son taking charge of my tribe, all my possessions being in his hand, my serfs and my cattle, my fruit and every pleasant tree I owned. Then this humble servant came southward and halted at the paths of Horus. The commander who was there, in charge of the frontier patrol, sent a message to the residents to bear tidings. Then I set out and sailed until I reached the capital at Ichitawi. And when the land was lightened and it was morning, there came men to summon me, ten coming and ten going, to convey me to the palace. And I pressed my forehead to the ground between the sphinxes, and the royal children stood in the gateway against my coming. The companions that had been ushered into the forecourt showed me the way to the hall of audience. And I found his majesty on a throne in a gateway of gold. And I stretched myself on my belly, and my wits abandoned me in his presence, even though this god greeted me joyously. I was like a man caught in the night. My soul fled, my flesh quaked, and my heart was not in my body, so that I could know life from death. And his majesty said, You have come, you have trodden the deserts, you have traversed the wastes, nothing has prevailed against you, and you have reached old age. But do not stay silent. In truth, I still feared punishment, and answered him with the answer of one who is afraid. Would that I might answer it, but I may not. It is like the hand of the god, this dread which is in my body, like the fear which caused my fateful flight. Behold, I am in your presence. My life is yours. May your majesty do as he pleases. The royal children were ushered in, and his majesty said to the royal consort, Behold, Sinue, who has come back from the land of Yam. Neferu gave a great cry, and the royal children shrieked out together, and they said to his majesty, It cannot be he, my lord. And his majesty said, Yes, it is really he. But he shall not fear, 
for he shall not dread. He shall become a companion among the magistrates. He shall be set in the midst of the nobles. So when I was gone from the hall of audience, the royal children gave me their hands, and we went together to the great portals, and I was placed in the house of a royal son. Every serving man made busy with his task. Years were shed from my flesh, for I was shaved and my hair was combed. I was clad in soft linen and anointed with fine oil. By night I lay upon a bed, and in the end I gave up the sand to those that dwell within the desert. I think of Sinue's return as something similar to that portrayed in the film Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence, bringing news of victory in the Arabian Peninsula, emerges from the desert and finds himself in the opulent gardens of the British governorate in Cairo. Soldiers march in quick step and play pool amid native servants. Fountains spew water into the air, and the ground is swept clean regularly. Tiled floors, marble columns, and open courtyards surround Lawrence, along with the watching eyes of soldiers used to a life of British colonial luxury. Lawrence's shell shock, his sense of being out of place, are palpable. So it is with Sinue, who finds himself in the comfort of the palace after many years living a more rural, bucolic existence. His sense of displacement is strong, and he finds his surroundings unfathomably comfortable and luxurious. Servants groom him, which for the Egyptians is a sign of civilization. His bed is made of wood and flax, softer than blankets on the ground. And then the king issues his commands for the final, eternal reward. And there was constructed for me a tomb of stone in the midst of the tombs. The masons that build tombs marked out its ground plan. The master draftsmen designed it. The master sculptors carved in it, and the master architects who are in the necropolis bestowed their care upon it. All the gear that is placed within the tomb shaft went as its equipment. And my statue was overlaid with gold, and its apron was of real gold. It was his majesty who caused this to be made. There is no poor man for whom the like hath been done. And I enjoyed the favours of the royal bounty until the day of death came. It is finished, from the beginning to the end, according as it was found in writing. And so we come to the end of Sinue's tale. Sinue's tale is, by the standards of most Egyptian scholars, a masterpiece. A grandiose portrayal of despair, survival, triumph and return. It is a perfect example of the monomyth proposed by Joseph Campbell. More fundamentally, it is a gorgeous piece of Egyptian storytelling, revealing so much of the ancient mindset and personal convictions of the ideal Egyptian man. Sinue, if he ever existed, returned to a court stable and prosperous under Sinusaret I. But we have spent this episode largely away from Egypt, in the land of Palestine and modern-day Lebanon. Next time, we will return to the court of Sinusaret, 
whose reign is likely to dominate our narrative for several more episodes. The rule of Kepakare Senusaret I is one of incredible cultural development. It is in this time that Egyptians perfect the design of the anthropoid coffin, that is, the coffin in the shape of a human with which we are so familiar today. It is a period of artistic achievement and religious development, a true golden age for the kingdom. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.